Good morning, Elevation. Glad to be with you once again. For those of you who don't know, my name is Brandon. I'm the lead pastor of Elevation. Now, before we officially dive in here this morning, I got a special treat for you. This is A Deep Thought by Jack Handy. One thing kids like is to be tricked. For instance, I was going to take my nephew to Disneyland, but instead, I drove him to an old, burnt-out warehouse. Oh no, I said. Disneyland burned down. He cried and cried, but I think that deep down, he thought it was a pretty good joke. I started to drive over to the real Disneyland, but it was getting pretty late. Okay, so now depending on what you think about the resiliency of children, that was either a great lesson in embracing loss or a terribly cruel and unusual joke. This morning, I would like to talk about the experience of feeling like something of great importance to you has burned down. I'm going to try to describe an experience that many Christians walk through at one point or another and help us engage in some reflection on how we can make the most of something that can be incredibly disorienting in the moment. Like the nephew who thought that Disneyland had burned down, the feeling of losing our faith can be devastating, even if it's not actually our faith that is burned down. Now, I want to talk just for a moment to those who are watching from the outside of the church, and Christian faith is not something that you would identify with necessarily. Well, what you're going to hear about this morning is a story about people who care enough about their faith that they're not willing to just hang on to something just because they always have. But neither are they willing to let go just because the journey gets a little rocky. This is part one in a three-part series that I've called Reconstructing Faith. This morning, we're going to talk about what happens when the structure, structures of our faith crumble. And then next week, we're going to talk about the challenge of rebuilding faith. And then finally, some of the sources of inspiration that can allow us to have a long-standing faith. So I want to tell you a little bit about my own journey of faith, which began in this very room. I grew up attending what was then St. John's Lutheran Church, and I had a lot of great memories as a kid, some not so great ones like being bored out of my mind during services sometimes, um, but overall a great experience as a kid. When I hit middle school, however, it was a time where I wasn't really resonating with what was going on in the church, and so there was a season for a couple of years in my life where I disconnected from faith and disconnected from church. In time, I found a new church that welcomed me in and helped me build up a version of Christian faith that I could call my own. And that Pentecostal church did a lot of good for me. I wanna tell you a little bit about some of the good. That place taught me about the opportunity to have a relationship with God, that God was not some distant being, but a God that I could communicate with in prayer. That place provided a community of people to learn, grow, and worship alongside. They instilled in me a desire to worship God from a deep place in my heart. I was challenged to cast off the sin that was in my life and pursue a life of holiness. They helped me lay a theological foundation that was rooted in the Bible. And they gave me my first leadership opportunities and they stirred up for me a passion in the church that would one day lead me to drop out of business school and pursue the vocation that I've been in for the last 22 years of my life. You see, before the structure of my faith ever began to break down and burn, it built me up and provided a solid foundation on which the rest of my life has been and will continue to be built. 
You see, whenever we go through a season of change, we tend to distance ourselves from whatever it is that we previously identified with. Maybe it's who you voted for in the last election because things didn't work out so well for you. Or maybe it's the band that you used to be obsessed with. Or maybe the clothes that you used to wear. And you just hope that no one identifies with you with the person you were in the past. I asked around the office for some examples of things that, that people wouldn't want people to identify with them, pre their present selves, and a few examples with no names attached. There was the scientifically questionable sex ed talk I gave to a room full of high school students. There was the elitism of my childhood church where we looked down on everyone else. There was the time I made fun of food that Korean exchange students were eating. There was the time I told a middle school classmate that he was going to hell because he was gay. There are all kinds of things from our past that we would like to erase or that we hope no one ever finds out about. But as a Canadian psychologist, David Benner writes, identifying and embracing your lineage is an important part of any pathway to a greater wholeness because it involves remembering your own story. All the parts of your journey must be woven together. This is the way in which I came to know that everything in my life belongs, that every part of my story has made important contributions to who I am. And the same is true for you. Another author and teacher, Richard Rohr, uses an analogy of scaffolding to a building. He says that those early kind of building block stages of our faith, um, where we learn, we basically construct our faith is like a scaffolding. Now, a scaffolding is not the goal, it's not the end goal, but it is an important part of the building process. And so there is a time in our faith journey when the scaffolding can be set aside because it's no longer needed. But we don't disparage uh, the fact that we had scaffolding to begin with. It was an important part of helping to build our faith up. Uh, Rohr borrows language from the philosopher Ken Wilber of transcend and include, that we wanna maybe move beyond, in a sense, an earlier stage of our faith commitment, but at the same time, we include that in part of our journey moving forward. But why do we need to transcend in the first place? What's wrong with just keeping on the path that we started out to begin with? Well, maybe nothing. So long as our faith is growing and expanding and deepening. And the thing is, as we're all very well aware with, not all environments allow for this to happen. Not all relationships have room for personal growth. Not all families embrace change. Not all churches are open to that kind of change. You see, one of the things that most churches offer is a combination of stability and certainty for people like you and I, who are easily overwhelmed at the prospect of navigating faith on our own. And so you'll never see this on a church's website, but there is kind of an underlying message in almost any church community that says, stick with us, and you'll be A-OK -okay now and forever. It's that stability that we all hunger for, and it's valuable in so many ways. But stability, by definition, is limiting. So here's an example. A few weeks ago, Melissa and I were out on a lake and we decided to take a, a canoe ride together. So I got in the back of the canoe and I said, all right, you can get in now. And she's like, you're going to let this thing tip. I do not trust you in this canoe. And I'm like, no, 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 it's going to be fine. And so I told her, I said, you just have to step in the absolute center of the canoe. If you step like to the side, then yeah, we probably will tip. But you have to step in the absolute center. And then once you're standing there, you have to sit down. And when you sit, you have to sit in the absolute center of the canoe. And once we've got everything lined up, then we'll get a, be able to get moving. That's stability. Now compare that to canoe experiences from when I was like, uh, when I was a kid and a preteen at summer camp, we used to do this thing called gunnel bobbing. 
Uh, basically, you have one person standing on either end of the canoe, standing on the gunnels of the canoe, and you're bouncing up and down with the goal of bouncing the other person off into the water before you fall yourself. Now, those are two very different examples of how we can move a boat in a canoe. One is stability, stay in the center line, and the other, well, it's a whole lot more fun, isn't it? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that any of us rock the boat for the sake of rocking the boat. But when stability and certainty take over, well, we risk losing something else. In 2018, when Elevation adopted a new posture on LGBTQ inclusion, we experienced significant loss. Around 65 people left our community. Good people, committed, faithful people, involved and invested people in our community. And I think this is one of the significant reasons that a lot of churches won't talk about these kinds of issues because there's so much risk of loss. But we also gained something, didn't we? We gained something significant during that season. Among other things, we reminded one another about the kind of church community that we have always been and that we always want to be. Pulling from one of our four key values, spirit-centered living, we are not averse to change and in fact welcome new challenges with faith that God is with us. I want to read an excerpt from Piden's great book, The Sin of Certainty. Rather than simply protecting the past, our faith communities have a sacred responsibility to protect the future by actively and intentionally creating a culture of trust in God in order to deliver to our children and children's children a viable faith, a faith that remains open to the ever-moving spirit and new possibilities, rather than chaining the spirit to our past, a faith that welcomes opportunities to think critically and reflectively on how we think about God, the world, and our place in it, rather than resting at all costs on maintaining familiar certainties. This kind of critical thinking is the spark that sets fire to the scaffolding of our faith. Now, there's a question I'm pretty sure we've all kind of asked in some kind of social setting in the past. If you discovered that your house was on fire, what one item would you take? Now, assuming that you have decent insurance, the answer usually boils down to something that would be irreplaceable. Just because something costs a lot of money, insurance can cover that, but it's the photo album that you don't have any digital copies of, or it's the box of memorabilia from when you were young, or it's the musical instrument that uh, a relative passed on to you that you could replace, but it wouldn't be the, have that same personal connection. Now, we could do a similar kind of exercise with our faith. What are the irreplaceable elements or aspects of your faith in Jesus? What are the things that you just cannot let go of at any cost? So we all have an idea of what those might be, but for many of us, there are other elements of the faith maybe that we grew up with or the faith that we have embraced that no longer sustain or build us, that no longer resonate with us. Again, I wanna share from some of my own experience, and I think that some of these things you will be able to identify with like to a T, and others maybe not at all. There was a time when I began to struggle with absolute, having an absolute certainty about things uh, pertaining to faith. Uh, things were either right or wrong. There was black or white. There was no gray area. I began to struggle with an emphasis on people being either in or out, in or out of church, in or out of heaven or hell. There was a formulaic understanding of salvation, that if you kind of said this particular prayer, the sinner's prayer, then you are in. But if you hadn't done that, then you certainly must not be in. 
there was a lack of engagement with the people around us, except, of course, if it involved them coming into our church community. Guilt and shame were used as tools, and there was a lot of moral policing that went on, making sure that everyone stayed in alignment. There were emotional appeals. There were what I would refer to as spiritual manipulations. There was the, the threat of hell to try to scare people into faith in Jesus. I experienced a narrow understanding of what true faith looked like. I mean, it doesn't matter what denomination or what church you were a part of, a lot of us had an experience where our church was the right one and everyone else was at least slightly wrong. There was a literal reading of the Bible that seemed to ignore or not have room for its complexities. Now, what about you? Maybe some of these resonate. Maybe you've had some of those same struggles with faith. Now, the one thing I wanna make really clear here is that I'm not talking about those things as an outside observer. I would say that at some point, I would have embraced almost every one of those aspects of my faith. That list that I just read would have described how I lived and believed and practiced my faith at one point in time. But what about you? So maybe some of those elements, but maybe something else. Maybe your faith was tied to specific opinions, or maybe your faith was tied to political parties or behaviors. I was looking at a photo recently of my now 17-year-old daughter, but it was from a few years ago when we bought her this pair of jeans, uh, maybe for her birthday or Christmas. The thing that bothered me when we bought these four was that they were already ripped. Now, that's the style. I get it. I'm old. But it seemed to me ridiculous to be buying jeans that were already starting to wear out. Now, as anyone who owns a good pair of jeans knows, you wear those jeans as long as you can. And Sophia has continued to wear those jeans. Only now, they're not little rips. It's like massive holes, kind of like this picture here. Okay, slight exaggeration, but really not that much of an exaggeration. Now, there's something that's freeing, even a bit exciting about having a few rips in your faith, right? A few areas where you're not quite the same as other people. But what happens when the holes get too big? What happens when your faith really starts to come apart at the seams? When old ways of thinking and believing and living suddenly don't seem to work anymore? Now, at first, what happens is that the questions rattle around somewhere in the back of your mind. You don't say them out loud. You keep them to yourself. Now, the worst case scenario is that that's where they stay, that you never find a safe person or community to share those ideas with. Back in, I'm going to say 2002, a friend and mentor of mine recommended a book to me. He said, it's an absolute must read. The author was someone I hadn't heard of before, Brian McLaren, and the book was called A New Kind of Christian. At the beginning of the book, he kind of explains that he's a pastor and he'd been really struggling with exactly what I'm talking about this morning, this idea that his faith just wasn't lining up anymore and he wasn't sure what to do. Now, I remember reading this book for the first time uh, because I have this vivid memory of sitting in a chair in the living room of our semi-detached home and Melissa's on the other side reading a book in our love seat. And I'm reading the book and I put it down and I said, you will not believe what I'm reading right now. And I said to her, this guy is writing things that have been rattling in the back of my head that I have said to nobody. I can't believe this. And so I picked the book off my shelf this week and I decided to kind of reread the beginning and figure out when was the first time I would have come to that. And it was actually just in the introduction of the book. So he explains this kind of dilemma he has as a pastor and as a Christian, and this is what he writes. At the time, I could see only two alternatives. One, 
continue practicing and promoting a version of Christianity that I had deepening reservations about, or two, leave Christian ministry and perhaps the Christian path altogether. There was a third alternative that I hadn't yet considered. Learn to be a Christian in a new way. He goes on, I think a page or two later, to share this diagram that I'll put up on the screen for you. The number, the area on this diagram indicated by number one is kind of that first formative era of faith. That's your previous paradigm where everything just made sense, your world was congruent. Stage two is when you begin to question those things. Things aren't aligning. You're not comfortable as you used to be. Stage three is when you decide to take some first steps into a new area or sphere of faith. And stage four, in area number four is wide once again, and that's the area where you begin to really fully live out this new vibrant faith. What we're talking about this morning is the transition from area one to two. Next week, we're gonna take a look at section three, and then the week after, section four. The experience of transitioning into that narrower section two can be daunting. But if we allow it, this crumbling of our formative faith can actually lead in time to the rebuilding of a healthier and more sustainable faith. Now, it's taken me a little while longer than usual to get here, but finally, this morning's reading from Nehemiah. When we first meet Nehemiah, we find someone whose city is literally lying in ruins, a fitting companion for anyone whose faith has experienced some crumbling down of its own. Now, this Old Testament book begins with a conversation between Nehemiah and some companions who had recently visited Jerusalem, the former center of Jewish worship. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. So a brief background here. Many generations earlier, God called out to a man named Abram and said, if you leave your land, the land of your fathers, I'm gonna bring you into a new promised land where your descendants will become a blessing to the entire world. Well, generations went by and through all kinds of ups and downs, eventually God, this people of God entered into a promised land. Now, in time, they would go back and forth between being obedient to God and disobedient, following him and following other gods. And after enough of this kind of back and forth, uh, God allowed their nation to be taken over by a foreign army and they were sent into exile. Now it's an imperfect analogy, but it helps us explore a significant experience that many people have along the journey of faith, a sense of displacement, a sense of exile, like you don't belong, like you don't fit like you don't have a home. Like the promised land doesn't feel like much of a promised land anymore. When I think back to those early years that I had in a Pentecostal church, that was the promised land for me. And then eventually it became a place that I didn't feel at home anymore. And that is part of the challenge of a journey of faith. Nehemiah 1 verse 4, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now one of the key things for us to understand about this part of the biblical story is that it was God who allowed the destruction of Jerusalem in the first place. If we let the analogy play out, we have God both allowing the building up of our earlier forms of faith as well as allowing the breaking down of their walls. A great example of this comes from Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. There's a, a number of parallel passages there that follow a pattern, you've heard that it was said X, but I tell you Y. So an example, Matthew 5, 20 to 21. 
You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. This is what you've heard about a life of faith, and I'm telling you this. He said the same thing about adultery. You've heard don't commit adultery. I'm telling you don't even lust after someone. You've heard that you can divorce someone for any reason as long as you give them a certificate. I'm telling you, you can only divorce someone for marital unfaithfulness. You've been told, give these oaths. I'm saying, don't, be, don't give oaths, just be honest with people. You've been told, have revenge as long as it measures up to the crime. I'm telling you, don't have revenge, turn the other cheek. You've been told, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. I'm telling you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Now, Jesus made it very clear, because you can look at this and say, okay, well, he was like kind of tearing down an old way of faith and, and introducing a new one. But he said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The law and the prophets are like the scaffolding that was building what faith was always meant to be and that Jesus was introducing. I love this line from Pete Rollins. He says, one doesn't, doesn't simply deconstruct one's Christianity. For this very act of deconstruction is a direct expression of Christianity. It's a brilliant idea. He's saying like Jesus himself comes in and begins to deconstruct what people thought the religion, pure and true religion was all about. And so when we do that ourselves, we're kind of following in the pattern of Jesus. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. How and where we build a life of faith matters. And the good news is that Jesus is with us right in the middle of our deconstruction. He continues to extend an invitation to go beyond faith as we've always known it. Now, Nehemiah prays that God would hear his cry and give him favor with the king. I'll read from chapter two, verses two and three. The king asked me, why does your face look so sad? when you are not ill. This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? This passage struck me when I was first thinking about this series because of the humanity of Nehemiah's experience, the sadness of heart that comes with loss, even if we know that the loss will be good for us in the end. Naming this loss is an important part of being open to new possibilities. I wanna close this morning by reading a story from the life of Otto Scharmer in a book he co-authored called Presence. Then I'm gonna read just two short lines from Nehemiah chapter two that will leave us kind of hanging on the edge until we continue this exploration next Sunday. I was 16 years old. I left for school one morning and by the time I got home, everything had changed. About halfway through the day, the principal called me out of my class and told me to go home. She didn't tell me why, but I noticed that her eyes were slightly red as if she had been crying. I walked as quickly as I could to the train station and from there I called home, but no one answered. The line was dead. I had no idea what might have happened, but by then I knew it probably wasn't good. I boarded the train and after the usual 45 minute ride, I took a cab rather than wait for the bus to take me the last few miles home. It was the first time I'd ever taken a cab. Long before we arrived, I saw it. 
Huge, gray-black clouds of smoke were rising into the air. The long chestnut-lined driveway that led to the farm was choked with hundreds of neighbors, firefighters, policemen, and gawkers. I jumped from the cab and ran the last half mile. When I reached the courtyard, I couldn't believe my eyes. The huge 350-year-old farmhouse where my family had lived for the past 200 years and where I'd lived all my life was gone. As we stood there, I saw that there was nothing, absolutely nothing left but the smoldering ruins. As the reality of what was before my eyes sank in, I felt as if somebody had removed the ground from under my feet. The place of my birth, childhood and youth was gone. Everything that I had was gone. But then as my gaze sank deeper into the flames, the flames also seemed to sink into me. I felt time slowing down. Only in that moment did I realize how attached I had been to all the things destroyed by the fire. Everything I was and had been intimately connected to had dissolved into nothing. But no, I realized not everything was gone. There was still a tiny little element of myself that wasn't gone with the fire. I was still there watching. I, the seer. I suddenly realized that there was another whole dimension of myself that I hadn't been aware of, a dimension that didn't relate to my past, to the world that had just dissolved. The next day, my grandfather arrived. He was 87 years old and had lived on the farm all his life. He had left the house a week before to go to the hospital for medical treatments. Summoning all the energy he had left, my grandfather got out of the car and walked straight to where my father was still working on the cleanup. He didn't even turn his head toward the smoking ruins of the place he had spent his entire life. He simply went straight up to my father, took his hand and said, keep your head up, my boy, look forward. Turning around, he walked directly back to the waiting car and left. A few days later, he died quietly. Even after all these years, this moves me still. That little scene of my grandfather walking by, ignoring the ruins of his home and focusing all his remaining life energy on shifting my father's attention from reacting to the past to opening up to what might emerge from the future. Our invitation is the same, to make the shift from reacting to the past to opening up to the future and what God wants to do in and through us. Nehemiah 2, starting at verse 4. The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. Next week, we're going to explore what it looks like to rebuild what's been broken down and burned. Let us pray. Lord, I'm grateful for the formational stages of our faith. Some of us are in those very beginning stages right now. Others, that's decades ago. But God, I, I want us to be able to celebrate and be thankful for everything that has been part of shaping us to be the people we are today. And I just want to acknowledge the loss that is in there as well. But God, I pray that you would help us to be the kind of people who look forward and anticipate what you long to do in our midst. As we go about our day and our week, I pray that you would show us all of the opportunities that are out there for us to continue to grow into a living and vital faith. In Christ's name, amen. 
As we do each week, we take some time at the conclusion of the message to dive into some conversation in our neighbors groups, and I would certainly encourage you to stick around for that today. If you're not regularly part of a neighbors group, there'll be a link in the comments section and you can click on that and join one of the groups. It's an opportunity for us to discuss this morning's sermon, as well as check in on one another and encourage one another on our shared journey of faith. As you head out into the day, I pray that you would know the peace of God with you today. God bless.